The Wolf and Bull podcast was prepared, conducted, and hosted by the Wolf and Bull team in their personal capacity. This podcast is for expressive listening entertainment, and any views, ideas, or opinions may or may not extend past the boundaries of this podcast. Conversations or specific comments on behalf of the hosts and guests are for entertainment purposes only. Due to language and potentially offensive topics, listener discretion is advised. podcast i'm your host the wolf and i have my co-host the, the bull, bull sitting across from me and i keep forgetting to do this but my sound is this and your sound is we a deer haven't changed i haven't that, changed it i haven't changed it at all bull yeah, i haven't changed it at all yeah it's it's, ah, it's it sounds dude, great we need a better bull sound than that do we need a better bull sound because the only ones i sound found were moo which is not a bull no, sound moo that's a cow work um yeah but uh Across from me is the bowl, and today we have a special guest, uh, Professor Mark Joslin. He is a professor of political science at the University of Kansas, author of over 50 journal articles, and author of the intriguing and impactful book, The Gun Gap, uh, The Influence of Gun Ownership on Political Behavior and Attitudes. Welcome to the show, Professor Joslin. Thank you, Wolf and Bull. It's nice to be here. <laughs> and I guess I'm in the Wolf and uh, Beowulf den. The den, yeah, the den. Yeah, yeah. It's the dungeon. The scientific the reference. <laughs> be a bad thing to be in a dungeon. And uh, before we get started, just a quick reminder to our listeners. Uh, if you like what you hear, make sure to follow us on Instagram um, for the latest updates. And a subscription on YouTube would be fantastic. And make sure to give us a five-star review on any of the major listening platforms. Uh, we are also making waves on TikTok, so you can find us there as well. But how is everyone doing? Good? You know, I'm doing great. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's, it's early in the day. I've, I've not your bedtime yet. No, I haven't had to take a bull nap yet. So I'm <laughs> doing quite well. How about you over there, Professor Johnson? I have not taken a nap yet either. Um, <laughs> that's, but, that's very good. Um, you, you notice there's a certain age category. There's, you know what though? There is, I, I'll never forget this. This was, I don't know, 30 years ago or something like that. I went into an appointment. I was still young in the sales department. 30? No, okay, 40 years ago. Anyways, I was still young in the sales department with this company I was working for. And I went into this office and uh, the person I was supposed to meet up with wasn't there. And I asked the secretary, where is this guy? Where, you know, he's late for his appointment. Oh, he'll be out in like five minutes. And I said, why are you whispering? She, goes, she, she pointed over this way and there was this little, little office meeting area over there. And I peeked my head around the corner and there's a guy laying on the conference table asleep, not slumped over the conference table, actually laying on top of the conference table. How do you know he's asleep? He came in dead. Well, I was worried. I mean, he didn't have his hands <laughs> over his chest and it, you know, he was he was asleep, he was taking a power nap. And I thought, oh, all these old people, man, they take power naps. What is yeah. that about? Yeah, you had a millennial you thought. Know, what's such a good thing is to take a power nap, man. Fifteen hey, minutes, boom. Uh, this this happened uh, a similar story. Uh, when I was in grad school, my uh, dissertation advisor, and he wouldn't mind me talking about him in this okay. regard, he uh, when I first met him, I, they told me, go upstairs. There's this guy upstairs. You need to talk to him about your project. And so I go upstairs and I knock on his door. There was no answer, but the door was just ajar. 
And so I peeked in there and there he is. He's just flat out on his, uh, he had a, a third row of his van that he had pulled out. He took up in his office and he sat down and he, every day he'd take a nap from 12 to one. And so after he invited me in and he kind of groggy woke up as we got to know each other for longer periods of time, I, I came back to that story. I said, why, why do you sleep at 12 to one every day? I was in the Navy. Evidently he was in the Navy and they, he went in he, on the long ship trips. He, oh, yeah. he 12 to one every day and he never got out of that habit. 12 to mm. one every day. So, wow. But the question I would have asked, and I'm sure you probably did, was why did he use the backseat of a van well, as his couch? In the that, office? That's a longer that's story. A whole, yeah, I know. I'm not sure we want to hear that his one. His couch, uh, home. Yeah, exactly. There were some other issues going on yeah. that we will not discuss. Yeah, well, should I get into the monologue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. um, I'll, I'll make this really quick, nice and concise, as I normally do. <laughs> oh boy, maybe I can get that power nap in right uh, oh yeah, now, right? Just go ahead and fall asleep. Um, America is an incredibly dangerous country. We have data of every sort to convince you that at any given point, you could arrive in the afterlife. Wait, no, that's not right. Three in 10 U.S. adults are now religiously unaffiliated. Um, let me start over. Uh, America is an incredibly dangerous country. We have data of every sort to convince you that at any given point, you could end up deceased. Ending your lineage and legacy, resulting in a complete nothing burger when your shot could have been a verified Kobe Bryant three-pointer. With most causes of death being health-related ailments, almost all of them have sugar intake-related causes. You'd think that the FDA and the CDC would be concerned about what sugar is doing to their consumers, but that's probably a question for another energy-related episode. America is an incredibly dangerous country. It's comprised of dangerously armed people who happen to own pew-pew devices. Many have misunderstood this subset of society. Why do they need F-15s and maybe some nuclear weapons? Isn't there a better way to be safe, like trusting the police, whom we've been told over the last few years that we shouldn't trust? Wouldn't finding identity with other much safer groups be more conducive to a more secure society? Besides, this group can't be at that large and impactful, right? I mean, gun owners can't be that large and impactful. Uh, that's why we've brought in our guest today to discuss the differences between gun owners and non-owners and how understanding that difference or gap can represent an important explanation for voter choice, voter turnout, perceptions of personal and public safety, preferences for gun control policies, and support for the death penalty. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of excellent. a weird one. Yeah. 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 I, I like you're starting down another podcast trail there. Yeah, right? I got distracted. You had to reel yourself back in. Yeah, but you yeah. had to talk about Kobe Bryant in the middle of that. I did. Come on now. Why? Because yeah. he's the best three point shooter yeah, of all time. R.I.P. Man. Why would you bring it there? Well, didn't you? I didn't. I thought you did. Well, you inferred wrong. Swish. <laughs> <laughs> so, Professor Jocelyn, before we jump into your book today, I'd love to give our listeners some insight. Um, as a professor at the University of Kansas, what got you interested in political science and teaching? Were you always interested in teaching political science? No, I wasn't. And just before, I, I think uh, Stephen Curry might. Here you go. Oh, you yeah. Go. Okay. Yeah. Kobe Bryant was not quite a three-point Maybe I should. Maybe I should look. Maybe I should look. No, I hadn't planned on teaching political science at all uh, and not teaching, period. Uh, my route to, to where I ended up was very... Um, circuitous, uh, very, very almost random at, at certain points. I, I did an MBA first. Now that was the late 80s or mid 80s. The, the, I recall the most famous movie at the time was called Wall Street. I don't know if you remember that movie mm -hmm. and that was impactful and I wanted to be that guy and uh, I wasn't. <laughs> so, but I stayed in academics and I, I um, started to enjoy the, the writing 
and the theorizing and the discussing of topics. And I got an MA in economics along the way, and that that got me quite a bit more serious about academics in general. And I applied to a school in St. Louis, Washington University, and um, I got in and um, took off from there. And so uh, uh, political science, you know, given my background, it does touch on most anything. So you can be a political science and specialize in business, or you can be a political science and specialize in economics, mm-hmm. or um, like I do, survey analysis and uh, large mass, um, mass attitudes. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of institutional political science. So specialized just in Congress or just Supreme Court or things like that. So there's a lots of variation within politics that attracted me because I had a lot of variation in academic experience, if you will, before coming well, in. Well, it's interesting. You so. said you, you were, had an MBA in economics. And, <clears throat> excuse me, to me, uh, the confluence of economics and some of the principles, some of the things we've gone through, it, just take everything by, you know, quarter dec- a quarter century at a time, the in- economic impact is most influenced by political agenda than perhaps anything else. And you can talk about the Fed and this and that, but that's a political device as well, political tool. Sure. And so I think the confluence of those two things is probably, at least in my estimate, one of the best places to come from if you're going to be a political science. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned... There's not a lot of talk in, say, master's school in economics about politics. Why is that? It's very abstract, uh, theoretical, um, heavy statistical models, and they're apart from the reality of day-to-day. That's the academic side. Then, you know, some move over into the more pragmatic side, and then it's a lot of it's politics, where the Fed becomes a political actor, not just a Mm -hmm. solely supply and and demand-type well, I, you know, I think it's I think it's important in almost any analytical viewpoint to take a look at sheer numbers first when you're, you know, kind of cataloging or looking at big data or trying to come up with reasons for reasons against any particular thing like your book, looking at different data points and data sets and coming up with graphs and charts and things to to apply to what you talk about is the gun gap. But I think there's always a piece of that in a lot of academia that misses that that overriding I always talk I always go back and talk about the emotional side of things yeah and that's that's really the 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 social or the um, sociological side of what you're talking about and I I thought that you know I, I've read your book a couple of times and uh, and I had to wake up a couple of times in between because an academic <laughs> I had to take my power nap right <laughs> but, just but no, it's it's really good because it it uh, I, I haven't read many academic books that actually have some anecdotal stories in them like this. I think that's a real important piece that we, I'm sure we'll get to. Oh yeah, we do. we definitely will. I mean, that's 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 definitely really interesting. I th- I've always found it fascinating, you know, talking to people who have, uh, especially in your case, um, a very measured level of success and how they got to that point. Um, I think that you know. Oftentimes people take a position on something and they say, oh, I'm going to go in this direction and then life takes them somewhere else. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, you've offered, authored over 50 journal, journal articles, including publications in the American Journal of Political Science, Journal of Politics, Public Opinion Quarterly, Political Behavior, and Political Psychology. Per your b- book, much of your research explores political attitude formation and change, as you mentioned. With so much of your research exploring the granular nature of the political, I've noticed through your writing that you have an innate ability to keep things moderately based. Can you explain 
explain how you separate yourself from the polarizing nature of your research? I was trained well. Um, where I was trained in Washington University, they, they took that particular aspect. Um, there's a method by which you approach a topic. You don't care what's going on you know, in the news or the polarization you mentioned. That's not part of the analysis. The part of the analysis is just simply there's steps which you go. And wherever the conclusion is, is that your conclusion. Mm. That has changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when I was, uh, you know, trained, um, that's exactly how it was. In fact, the, the big, back in the day when I was trained, the big complaint about academics is they were not connected to reality. The complaint I, they, I see for the younger, some of the younger uh, folks in academics is they're too connected. They're too worried about how their results fit into a particular political agenda. And um, I think that has some implications for this book. This book is written uh, for two audiences. One is an academic audience that's saying, where have you been? Um, and the other is a really an audience that follows academics, that is uh, political practitioners and journalists who, who tend to follow a lot of academic writing, not theoretical writing, but the implications of it. And if you don't have, for example, if there's no writing at all about gun owners in academics, you won't see a lot of discussion about it um, in post-election analysis or about topics in politics on journalism in journalism, wherever the writing happens to be. Mm. Um, and, and so that's what I'm, the book's aimed at. Yeah. See, this, this particular uh, subject matter, though, it's interesting, too, because I think the point you made earlier about, and I know you, set, you specifically said some of the younger crowd is, is too connected to wherever they think their position has to go to. I think it's actually further than that in a lot of ways. I think oftentimes it's there is a specific end result that is, and this has always been a problem in science in general. You, you're looking for a specific result because you want to, you know, get a a, a a grant to do further research or sure. whatever the case may be. So you're tying in your analytics to point you in that direction, mm -hmm. which is the spin game. Correct, and I, but I think that this particular subject, because it has so so much emotional volatility around it, tends to lend itself to people that are looking to narrow cast it to a certain audience. That's that's one of the reasons I thought that that this book did a great job of kind of keeping right down the center lane, yeah. in particular to show the sides of things without being reflective bias. Well, how can you study something accurately without being objective? Well, you can't, but, that, yeah. but that's been my complaint in a lot of subjects we've talked about over the course of the, how many episodes have we done now? This is 59, 59 almost 59. 60 episodes. So, so we've, had some, we've had some you know, serious topics and we've had some nice lighthearted topics, but they, the, the, the one thing that we can always agree upon is that there's so much uh, echo chambering bias that goes on in these things that it's hard to find a middle road in in you and i i know are, are pretty middle of the road on most things that we talk what are you about. talking about 
Except you, you're, you're kind of a radical <laughs> at times. <laughs> yeah, no, I consistently say that I'm black-pilled, which is probably something I should stop saying, but uh, it is what it is. I, I do think it is quite interesting, though, from you know, from the nature of your book to, to go to Bull's point, is you know, very often I when I read scholarly subjects, you can kind of read between the lines and see some of the bias, at least these days. Um, maybe not so much with you know books that are written you know maybe pre early 2000s but still it seems like that is a uh, um, a growing nature of trying to prove a presupposed bias about something and I'm not sure why that is because we can talk about entertainment but entertainment's been around for a long time but if if you have a particular direction if you stretch out time periods Mm. and you have a particular if you have a subject and you talk about that subject 75% of the time in one light and 25% of the time as the other side is the correct way, then this side is going to get more and more, as time goes on, it's going to be the mainstream. It's going to pull everything to this. It's going to be the center. Yeah. And that we talk about that in politics all the time. Things that the radical, the, the vocal minorities on either end of the political spectrum get all the attention thus pulling their ranks further and further toward them. Mm-hmm. And now, I, I know from discussions with other people and even yourself that, that you believe the, the mass in between is much more uh, prevalent and much stronger than we all give it credit for, and it c- tends to bring us back to a more median approach to the future. But I, I don't know. That's true within most academic fields, too. You hear a lot of, from the small minority of those who are biased, who are out there on Twitter every day, who who have got their agendas. But that's, for the most part, uh, not the most part, um, in large measure, uh, (laughs) it it is There was this training coming out again right there. (laughs) That there's not, not every academic's writing to, uh, because they have an ax to grind. Uh, not every book is produced, but the books that sell are often ones that are narrow-casted. And that's right. the incentive it, that you... Exactly. That, um, Wolf has talked about. There, There is incentive there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'll get a lot more grant money if I narrow-casted that book. Mm-hmm. And if I pitched it to a particular um, grant-making institution, in a particular, for example, in gun research, mm-hmm. that will... Talking the way in which this book is pitched, it will never, ever receive any um, support money-wise what will is if it's linked to violence yeah guns and violence produce that's where 99.9 percent of the research money is and so that's what you see produce that academics produce where the money's there, there's there's really no other alternative um and that's a huge bias because we don't understand guns gun culture gun owners mm-hmm. and guns and politics and gun sociology because we're so wrapped up in guns and violence yeah. i'm not saying that's not important but you can only run down that path for so long mm-hmm. right i mean how long are you going to there's no resolution to that answer no. that question so they're going to throw millions and millions of dollars on that for the next 20 years and we're going to end up in the exact same point because all the effort is toward you know does guns more guns equal more violence yes or no where does that take us? So, and my struggle with it, I feel like that's kind of a, a, a non-falsifiable um, 
premise, right? Because because that there's so many other factors associated, at least in my opinion, I could be wrong, but so many other factors associated with you know the usage of guns, how people interpret guns, um, the as you talk about in the book, the ownership levels of guns and how people perceive that ownership related to policies. Um, so for me, I guess my question is: Is the intention purely because that's where the money's going? They think that people are just more interested in reading more about violence, and that's the polarizing nature of things. Because objectively, um, as someone who appreciates, you know books like this that are that are moderate and have positions that um that it's not like i'm trying to digest well, someone's opinion or bias right i mean it's the old it's the old saying right if it bleeds it leads and that that's yeah. it's an economic verifiable thing that you can look at throughout history yeah it's yeah. also a very intuitive right i mean it's yeah. on the, on any movie you watch a gun doesn't walk right. in and, and you know there's a there's a some consequence gun, gun walks shoot, in shoots gun, itself right, <laughs> right? Like that would that, be entertaining that was poorly phrased thank you, no. you but it's intuitive grasp and and it has a huge constituency behind it would like to prove that there is a correlation between guns and violence or that there's not mm. there's two sides now Think about this, though. We live in, everybody talks about we live in the United States and there's more guns per capita than anywhere in the world and there's more violence. And they're aggregating across thousands of areas. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take one of the highest per capita gun areas in the country is Nevada. Mm. Uh, and in Henderson, Nevada, there's no crime, gun crime there, mm -hmm. right? So the gun per capita there is tremendously high, but there's, there's no link to violence. Violence is, is uh, sorted into very small geographical areas of cities and counties and states. Mm. And so the correlation between guns and violence is often um, kind of um, indirect because those small areas are creating a lot of that correlation, mm -hmm. where other areas are completely high guns, no violence, or low violence. Would it be possible, and this is just an observational standpoint, so would, it be, would it be possible that that, that correlation is almost a faulty correlation, almost not totally, but almost a faulty correlation. Because I mean, if you look at Henderson, you'd expect per the argument of you know mainstream media and those who are so, very but you, you got to dive into the socioeconomic control. factors involved in that. You also got to dive in per this per the read of this book. You also have to dive into the the viewpoint, the and also the 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 generational viewpoint on guns. Yeah. Because a big portion of what you talk about in the first stage of the book is who owns a gun. And the, the you know the demographics around that, right? And uh, and the and people that own the gun have a gun culture in their family history or their associated family history, whether it's from hunting or whether it's from a sense of uh, patriotism or whether it's from um, a sense of military kind of background. All those kinds of things apply. So you got to look at that. And, and the Democrats, Democrat demographics in the United States are have continued over the course of the last century to push toward urban dwelling away from the rural and toward family generationally that have less and less contact with these i've always had the opinion of them as tools which i know you've mentioned in the book once or twice it's pushed away from using these tools as anything to identify with their their personal safety or anything else and and that that's an interesting because it's a direction our country is still going it's not changing the well well, that's why I think that because I think a lot of people hold that position. I think I mean, and as someone who is biased in this area, because I do own a firearm, it, it, my my perspective has always been, yeah, it's a tool until someone picks it up. And at that point, it could still be a tool 
or it could be a, a weapon. Well, it could be what, something that could what harm it someone. Comes changes with its usage. Yeah. That's all so, it. so I guess my point about the faulty, the faulty correlation being that you have it's almost like, um, and this is the frustration I've had with a lot of discussions in America is it's almost like we've taken a position on things, be it guns or or uh, or religion or or um, certain rights in certain areas um, that are almost watered down so much that making the argument in and of itself in the like say for example the advocation of uh, of gun control the argument's so watered down that it's almost as if they don't take into consideration the alternatives which is yes we can have measured gun control but also have a culture that understands weaponry it can't we can't have the but we can't have both in my opinion when it comes to the argument from msm and i think it's a faulty correlation because no, I, right? th that's what it is that's i agree that they, they want to dichotomize it you mm. can't have both no right but we do have both um uh, a sociologist who does study this and who's got a very um, nice view of this in terms of moderation, in terms of thoughtfulness and trying to understand things as opposed to grinding, grinding an ax. He says guns are normal and normal people own guns. And if you, if you start with that premise, you look around and that's true. There's no time. There's just too many gun owners to say it's not true. Right. And that, if you, you take that and take it out farther, it isn't quite as scary as the world is, as one side would, would suggest. Most guns, you know, 90 millions aren't involved in anything nefarious at all. Mm. Most gun owners aren't involved in anything nefarious. You hear about the very tiny, tiny fraction that exists. And so that's gonna scare anybody, but that doesn't mean these two cultures as you mentioned can't coexist yeah they have a more difficult time coexisting when everybody is pointing fingers at each other and saying this is this is bad or this is good etc um if more people would approach this in a more sensible way as opposed to how politicians approach it and those who have incentives because of, of who's voting for them etc then we wouldn't have much problem and that was true in american society in 1970s yeah you look at some of the data in the book there's no polarization on this issue at all and that's probably at the peak of how many guns that were owned by families most all people had guns or were very familiar yeah, it was with almost guns. 50 percent back in like 72 it's still I think. over a majority of it's people live in a household now, with a gun yeah it's yep. that's hmm. true today and so, so and most non-gun owners know a friend who has a gun it's very common the question is is it um as dangerous and as powerful politically as it should be and i think it's over overrated in a sense mm -hmm. um, in terms of that one of the premises of your book is that this this gun gap and you've you've used that term in several different ways in the book but the, the primary one that i see is that it's not necessarily ignored but it's a minimized but probably fairly critical indicator of voting patterns of uh, not just on a national level but even a even a state and a regional level and <clears throat> i i agree that it's missing but it's still a very very volatile political football either way so the question is is why is it that politicians that are looking to engage with their constituency in a way that gathers their base and more solidly in the direction will use guns and guns control uh legislation legislation etc to 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 manage those bases, why do they use that as such a volatile political football, and not use it as such a an indicator of what's coming next as far as the voting populace is concerned? 
I don't know. That's, that's, what, that's why I was because, confused. Oh, no, I, I was, that's what led me into this book. I, I could, I, certainly the angst and tumult about guns is obvious to anybody who watches our politics. You can see it in the commercials. You can see it in there. So politicians understand they can divide up the pie in a particular way that, that creates a, a positive election outcome for them if they use guns as, as an issue. Um, but it's not discussed as an important group or as a group at all like gender is, like race like wealth, like um, age. And we can go right down the list, education versus not education. It's completely ignored. You and I, both you know the different coalitions from Democratic Republican, and they're all full of different categories of people. Guns is absent. It's identity yeah, politics yeah, missing one identity. Yeah. Right. But you know it's out there because, like you said, politicians use it on occasion. Uh, the parties differ on it when they decide to uh, on an election. On occasion, not always. And, um, but the, the people who communicate politics to us, journalists don't use it at all. They talk about it legislatively. You've heard about it, you've heard about, but not about voters but is as, because, a, is it as a group, a membership group that's mm. powerful, right? They talk about the NRA, right? Do you, yeah. But that's, that's the not evil. what this book's about. This is about millions of gun owners who aren't even associated with the NRA, yeah. how they vote predictably one way or the other. Do you think that it might have something to do with the fact that if they recognize that coalition as a group, then that coalition will thus enact a, a well, because your, your book points out that there's more civic duty to some degree associated with gun owners, how they view themselves. Do you think that if they were recognized as that group, that civic duty and involvement would increase? Do you think that's See, why I they avoid a, that? I think there's a counterintuitive nature to this particular subject. And, and it jumped out at me when I was reading a portion of your book that talked about how when, you know, the, the Democratic Party would win the White House, Obama, for instance, and, and there was a lot of, of thinking that there was going to be negative legislation against mm -hmm. the gun, gun ownership crowd, which there was not, by the way. As a matter of fact, it kind of went the other way in, in some aspects. Mm -hmm. But because of that, the gun lobbies, hell, I'm surprised they don't want you to vote for Democrats. Because every time, you know, if we're Certainly. talking about economics again, right? right. The, the main, if Smith and Wesson makes a lot more money when a Democrat's in office than they do when a Republican's in office. Yeah. So the, the, some of this stuff is a little is more Is that the game? What? What? There's some pretty interesting evidence. I mean, the, the, the best salesman for guns was Obama. Mm -hmm. And the worst was Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, one, a, a couple of them went bankrupt, the uh. gun makers. So, uh, and NRA didn't do very well under Trump either. Mm. And so, they moved to Texas, didn't they? Well. Or are they moving to, I don't even they know. They did. They moved to Texas. Yeah. New York, Attorney General, attacked them on all sorts yeah. of different issues. But um, when there's a Democrat in office, gun makers and gun interests generally do better. Mm. For, uh, because of the threat see, of more regulation. You, you mentioned something threat. a second ago, though, that I hadn't really thought about as much, and I don't know why, but the, the people that, that, communicate with us on all levels, including a lot of the platforms that are out there now. Um, the, uh, not, I was going to say mass media, but I want to mainstream mainstream media. I was thinking of mass shootings. We'll probably do this <laughs> at some point, but mass media, um, uh, is primarily from huge, uh, uh, population zones. You know, New York, L.A., Chicago, Atlanta, all the those are the primary focal points of all 
dissemination of, of news in this country, for sure. And that is, if you look at your socioeconomic data that you put together in here, those are the areas that have generational absence of this gun or this tool in the house. Absolutely, Northeastern. So there's, there's going to be, I, I saw in some of your charts, there was a 20 or a 30 point general normal gap between the, the, the viewpoint of non-gun owners versus gun owners over in their, their safety and security in a certain area. So again, it comes down to the mass media. Yeah, well, I think I think it was interesting that quote you brought up, uh, guns are normal, normal people owns, own guns. I think one thing people need to pay attention to is own. Everyone who's perpetrating crimes with weapons, most of the time it's not their gun. I mean, at least I would think. I think they get it from the black market or they'd take it from someone else. Um, that's kind of the whole gun show loophole people th- think people bring up, which they need to change the name of that. It, it should be like, I don't know, like hand-me-down gun loophole or something like that. I mean, it's just from my perspective. But I, I do think, you know, you have a point. It's there. There is an intentional um, misrepresentation of a very large subset of society that if it was interpreted appropriately, I would say probably would have a, a positive effect culturally, but a net negative effect politically, in my opinion. Um, I could be wrong, though. Well, let me give you an example. Um, guns were an extremely powerful issue in 2000. Mm-hmm. So Al Gore versus... Bush, right? And you, you know that was extremely close election decided by Florida, essentially. Um, Florida would have been irrelevant if Gore would have won his home state, Tennessee. He lost his home state. And the Democrats, post-election analysis, Democrat, elite Democrats who get together and think about why they lost, attribute that loss to Guns. his strong um, uh, gun control positions, which were you know, reflective of the early 90s under Clinton in which he was uh, helpful in passing federal legislation. One of those pieces was a ban on AR-15s, mm-hmm. right? And um, so Democrats thought oh, he was just too tough on gun owners. We have to do something, right? And so the next time around, they changed their approach. They were not going to attack gun owners and make them feel bad you know, like what you hear today, we're, what we're going to do is, is say, well, all we want is sensible, reasonable regulations. And we're going to, John Kerry is going to be our president and he's a hunter. Yeah. And they showed him hunting goose out in Western Pennsylvania. Now he never looked particularly good doing so, <laughs> you know, just like him surfing. In, in I'm going to shoot this guy now. Right. So <laughs> he lost that election, of course, and very tight election as well. But after that, Democrats said no more. Why? Because they lost. Literally, that's it. They, they felt that that's, that's kind of, you know, within any organization, change, changes happen, different people come to power, and the new kind of consulting group that came to power said, nah, we're not going that See, way. That, that gap, and, that mm-hmm. year you're talking about with Kerry, mm-hmm. that gap was still 15, no, 18 points between not non-gun owners and gun owners as far as their their voting. Well, right. well I think that, I think well go ahead. No, I'm just it it it, it widened from yeah. 2000 it, it on the gap, the gap between the propensity of gun owners to vote Republican versus non-owners. This is what we're talking about is a gap that has widened considerably since the 70s and it took off in 2000. Yeah, well, and I I guess my my and I, obviously your answer it makes uh, it makes a ton of sense. I just think that it's it's almost it's one of those answers that's so simple. It's kind of like really, because because you'd think that if there was such a close margin of election, they would think, well, if we have close elections going forward, 
then it can go either way and we could technically win more than we would lose. Right? I, I don't I don't disagree. That's part of the book. Like I said, I wrote it to to journalists and those who, who advise campaigns. Yeah. I don't understand, you know, why they they pulled back so quickly on mm -hmm. this issue. They could have been very moderate on the issue and won many more. Remember, Republicans own guns, the the greatest percentage of that group of Republicans own guns, but there's more de Democrats and independents who own guns than Republicans. Right. So there's right. lots of gun owners that aren't Republican that are very viable but see, if for you, if Democrats to attract. Yeah. But you're not going to attract people when you're attacking them. Yeah. Right. But if you if you were so, if if you were just listening to the major media outlets out there, you would think the only ones that actually own any guns are old right white Republicans yeah. that just got out of church that day. Right. You know that that's the the, the perception. That people are given them. Or, or the, ye, the yeehaw. And, 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 and ye also, guys. the only people against them are the ultra liberal downtown New York, you know, uh, Antifa kind, the mm. people, you know, that would rather throw Molotov cocktails and use a gun. Oh, but then, no, but their Antifa is very pro supportive guns. Yeah. They're very, no, they are pro gun. You want to talk about pro gun group? That's a pro gun group right there. I guess, I guess my whole point being, it just, it just seems counterintuitive as, as you were saying, because John Kerry, look, I think the reason he lost probably bad hairdo. I mean, obviously it's got to go back to the fact that all elections are fraudulent. I'm oh, so, here so you go. joking, here we go. joking, <laughs> joking. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, I guess my point being is you'd think that the parties would understand if they took a moderate position on some things that they would have a chance to win more. Cause as someone who, you know, is a gun owner, as I mentioned earlier, so everyone notices don't ever come to the, the freaking the, the den. We're dangerous here. Um, it, it's, I see that and I say, okay, well, I know there's Democrat candidates that I support some of their policies. Tulsi Gabbard's a great example. She's fantastic. I like her a lot. She's very moderate. I'm not a huge fan of her gun policy, but she's not out here saying that I'm a dang yee yee hick guy down in South Alabama who's ready to pull up the whatever the flag was, the rebel flag that people hate so much, so or Confederate flag. So uh, that's what I appreciate. And you'd think that most candidates would be like, that's probably a good position to have because as we've discussed, the people who have the most power are the people who are loved as opposed to the people who are feared, in my opinion. But it all comes down to economics, which Mark was talking about earlier. And if this background's in economics, people don't get elected unless they have a lot of money in their coffers. And and if, if their uh, party base, if the DNC or the Republican Party are pulled to the right or pulled to the left, then if you want that base and you want that money and you want to be the guy on the stage talking to the, the opponent at the end of the day, then you've got to move it. What do they say about primaries, right? Primaries always fly to the, the direction that is furthest away from the center. Mm. And then as the, as the, the main election occurs, then they come back toward the center. Yeah. So you can see it in, in election after election, except for guys like, you know, Trump that would just say, ah, I don't give a shit about anything. I'm going to say whatever I want. And if you don't like it, I don't. Everyone's care. my enemy. That's right. <laughs> but go back to Bulls, uh, not Bull, sorry, Wolf. I'm looking right at you. Uh, <laughs> We're the same. Your, your basic point is why are the parties doing this? Yeah. One thing to remember about any, any way of looking at politics, you don't have to impose rationality onto them. And then they're just not. They're entities full of a lot of different people who are, some are extremely bright, some aren't. It just depends. And they don't always make the right choices in terms of these issues. And de depending on the issue, 
as you mentioned, Bull, a lot of these issues are fraught with emotion so they're, and principle. And so they're making decisions with emotion, principle, and strategic um, electoral positions in mind. All three of those together suggest you're going to make the wrong decision sooner or later. And they often do. The NRA in the 70s was not aligned with either party. And at that moment, they were up for grabs. And they were growing as an institution, getting stronger as an institution. And Republican Party welcomed them. It was a smart move electorally because the NRA recognized the power of so many people that were members. And they, they instead of doing the old institutional announce, we'll lobby tightly and go to your office and try to convince you for the legislation, they use their members in terms of electoral pressure. And that, at that point, everybody started, to get, everybody started recognizing, um, at least practitioners started recognizing the power of a gun lobby and further, i.e., members. And so what the book details is um, gun owners have a huge inherent advantage in mobilization versus non-owners. Because if you buy a gun, the odds are sooner or later, well, first, you'll probably take a class or train with it. Second, that will involve target shooting, and you might go to the range. Let's say over 50% of gunners go to a range regularly. They buy ammunition. They target practice. They meet other gun owners. That, that, that kind of group is a perfect place for parties to mobilize people. They interact with each other. They talk about guns. They talk about the issues in politics. of they, They're located in centrally located places like that. Then you have the NRA structure imposed on top of that, which has offices in every state, I believe in counties as well, and all the way at the federal level. So they have a huge organizational structure in which the Republican Party can pull from and use mobilization techniques to get people to come out and vote. And then underneath that, you got um, gun ranges, informal social groups, hunting groups. All of that is perfectly suited to organization, get out the vote where non-gun owners have nothing, nothing in common, except one thing that mobilizes them, mass shootings, yeah. right? That's the thing that has started slowly to counteract this, this structure that the gun owners have. But it, as, it, as I showed in the book, gun owners are far more likely to show up at the polls uh, and vote, whether it be for a mayoral election, um, a, a, a student board election, or presidential election. Now, now that's, just, that's just from one aspect of mobilization. The other aspect is most, most elections, many of them, threaten gun owners' interests, right? Yeah, the Democrats go. are, well, you know, we, we need to regulate more. We can even do reasonable regulations, but a lot of gun owners don't trust that, right? Because the Republicans say, no, that's slippery slope. They're going to really regulate you, you know. Don't, so there's, there's, I have something at stake. And almost every election, a gun owner feels like something they have might be taken away from them. Then secondarily, there's this huge structure out there in which it's easy to mobilize them. Mm -hmm. I, another important part of the book that uh, is often unrecognized, I show in there statistic, uh, gun owners stay in one place more than non-owners. What that means is they're easy to find. So young people don't vote because they're always moving around the country at young, but um, and so they're hard to mobilize, hard to find. Once you move into a place, you don't register. You have all sorts of different things you have to. Gun owners tend to stay in one place. They own a home, more likely to own a home than non-owners, and they're more likely to pay their mortgage off than non-owners. Mm. All that means, I know where they're at. 
they're reliable voters, they're reliable citizens. And well, I, I, I think you had a statistic in there as well on top of all that that uh, spoke to how they view voting in general. Is right. it a duty or is it, it just a privilege? Right. And the gun owners felt it was a duty as opposed to the non-owners, which, which speaks to more than just the ability to organize them. It speaks to kind of a disposition or a viewpoint. It's not just the government is always something to be watched, which, I mean, that's, that's frankly one of the main pillars on which the United States was formed in the first place. You better watch who's, who the government is back in England because if you don't, they're going to tax you into oblivion. Right. Oh, really? Didn't we just didn't we just pass something with another? Hey, be dollars? careful there, bull! Be careful! You're calling the the kettle black there. No, I'm not a kettle. <laughs> I'm not calling anybody anything. Yeah. I'm just the the point is is that uh, the the idea of having a watchful eye on those that are quote unquote in charge is from from a person that's almost entirely logical based as my first premise makes a heck of a lot more sense than uh, blindly trusting everybody that we vote into office because Jesus, that that's insanity. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's the thing I think is interesting about gun owners specifically is because it does seem that there is an inherent distrust, um, which I've never really understood trust of, of government in my opinion ever. And that's maybe because I took political science classes. Isn't it and, more trust and verified than distrust though? I mean, I, I um, forget who said that first. I know it was in a Reagan speech yeah. years and years ago, but, but that's, that's kind of what it is. Hey, I'm going to trust you. Well, I think it, yeah, but, but I, gonna, I think it depends on, I think it depends on the group we're talking about. Right. Cause I would see that there's not very much government criticism from my demographic. I wouldn't say that. I'd say there's a lot of fall in line, listen to the popular subject, discuss with the group and be accepted by the group by agreeing with anything that comes out of the popular group's mouth. I think that a lot of groups, specifically millennials and Gen Zers actually fall subject to that, which may change. Um, hopefully it does. But at the same time, I do see, you know, through the book that, you know, from the data from the book, that there seems to be almost a staunch solidarity among gun owners, as you were saying, when it comes to them interacting with each other in opposition to the public and social trends of is, bigger government and bigger control. Is it because it's a voluntary solidarity, though? I would say so. I mean, I, yeah. I, I look at the, you know, what you brought up as far as structure is very interesting to me because I hadn't I thought of. When I think of gun ownership, I think of more this individualism. But there's structure on top of that that is not often recognized. And you point that out very well. But there's, there's also very large structures, um, just generally unions we could talk about, that are, are very important to the fabric of our society. And we can talk about the pros and cons of that forever, but they're, they're required to those that belong to, to unions. They're not voluntary or not in most states, and pretty soon, probably never in any state. You know, they're, they're, if you're, if you're going to be in this career path, then you're going to be part of the union. So the NRA may use its strength to organize, but it's, it's kind of herding cats over here. The other group is the, the unions, if you will, that I'm talking about, maybe AFL-CIO or something like that, is a required membership if you want to be employed by this group. So the money that you contribute over here that funnels to whichever party they're going to funnel it to 
it, it isn't a voluntary yeah, contribution. Yeah, but I, I do think gun ownership and, and gun involvement in groups is probably voluntary. I mean, just that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any data outside of that to suggest that it isn't. Um, maybe it'll change. Um, but I do think that uh, you brought this up earlier, but I do think it'd be something to talk about. And we kind of touched on it. You, you in your uh, chapter one of the book, you mentioned gun ownership was a bipartisan itch, issue that's no longer the case. Um, obviously, that much is true with the declining rates of ownership among independents, which is 32% in 2016, and Democrats, in 24, which is 24% in 2016. Yet Republicans have remained steady. Um, you know, I would love to talk more about, you know, if Republican gun ownership over time um, will be subject to decline over the next few years, or do you think it's going to be steady or go up? I don't have any reason for it to believe it would go down. Mm. It's, it's uh, as you noticed um, in that in some of the data, it, it stayed steady since the 70s. Mm. Um, so it's got, I mean, Republicans are being reinforced um, in terms of gun ownership, m- meaning their party um, agrees with it. Democrats, if you're a Democrat gun owner, there is some dissidence, right? Mm. That you hear your party talking um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, um, you know, talking against your interests. Possibly. Now, having said that, Biden owns a gun and so does uh, the vice president. And we know Hillary's so, packing too. So, yeah, so. <laughs> but, I mean, people own guns for a variety of different reasons. But what I'm saying is Republicans, uh, their possession of a gun is well aligned with their political views. And so it's, it's much easier to keep that mm-hmm. as, at, at, at that level. Um, I think some of the decline in gun ownership is the loss of rural life um, and the decline of hunting as well. Mm. And, uh, and so a lot of people just own rifles. They'd say own a gun. Well, they never used them in the same way you're, we might think with a handgun. So um, that's going to inevitably change. And Democrats tend to be the ones who aren't rural. So you're seeing that decline too. Mm. Um, I don't see Republicans going down in terms of that. Now, to that to that point, um, I, I obviously, while reading your book, I read a few articles. Um, an article from May of this year, uh, 2022, for future listeners, uh, U.S. gun sales have almost doubled since the start of 2020, rising from an average of 1 million guns sold a month in 2019 to nearly 2 million a month in 2020. That was source data from uh, the FBI and Small Arms Analytics, um, a firearms research consulting company based in South Carolina. Uh, do you think to the point we just discussed, that the numbers reflective of those changes are based more around polarized political worries? Or do you think maybe um, the changes in ownership are due to rises in crime or changes in policy of certain areas like Seattle, Chicago, New York? Um, and do you think that that increase in purchases of guns is going to be impactful in future elections? Well, that's a good question. I, I think the they're both. In other words, the the great gun buying spree of 2020 and into 2021 was in part a result of both political tensions and um, the pandemic. And, and if you could separate politics from the pandemic for a moment, the pandemic itself produced an uncertainty independent of politics um, amongst many, many thousands of million, millions of people that that once you get to a level of uncertainty and loss of control, the lines in gun stores get longer. Yeah. Um, not just for previous gun owners, too. That A lot of previous gun owners are buying these guns. So they're adding to their arsenal, if you will. Um, but lots of uh, first-time gun owners, yeah. women and blacks, mm. were the t- chief new 
gun owner uh, purchases during 2020, 2021. Um, security, right? Uh, and But that has also to do with the tumult during the, the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. right? Um, the things you mentioned. That creates also a lot of uncertainty for citizens in those areas. Um, not everybody was demonstrating, and the fires and looting, et cetera, that creates a need to, I have to safeguard my situation. And so that led to um, more gun ownership, or yeah, See, gun yeah. ownership. That's two reasons, so the pandemic, compile that with the summer of 2020, and then add into that an election coming up where many gun owners expected Biden to win, which is we better buy guns now um, because he's gonna change the situation. And both sides, because I have friends on both sides of this issue, they both told me that they're gonna go buy guns because they're not sure Who's not only who's going to win, but what will happen afterwards? See, that, they, that's yeah. that's uh, and that was a serious discussion I had with many people, with highly educated people. By the way, writing a book on guns, you get a lot of revelations from people you never had before. <laughs> yeah. By the way, come here for a second. <laughs> Let me tell you what I think. <laughs> no, well, not just those, but hey, I have a gun. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't know that. Don't mm-hmm. tell anybody, but I have. Um, I two neighbors I had um, when I was writing the gun uh, book. I they were my neighbors for several years, and they both invited me in the house. They had huge gun arsenals, and I had no idea. But once I said that, that, that's so funny that you say that because one of the things that I was thinking about while I was reading through this again was the nature of fear and uncertainty and risk tolerance, if you will. And how that applies so much to whether you want and have a gun, whether you think it's for security, whether you not, whether you, we don't know what's in our neighbor's houses. We're, we're sitting in one now. We have no idea what's next door on either side of us or across the street. Oh, I do. I know. <laughs> okay. Except the wolf. Who's wolf been I know everything. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> at the moon. I can smell, I can exactly. smell the, the, smell the residue. a mile away. <laughs> the, the, the powder. The ballistics. That's, that's right. But my, my point is, is, it, it, number one, your decision making is all based on constantly calculating and recalculating risk analysis. That's that's what people make decisions. That's one of the primary factors that make decisions. And when uncertainty comes in the picture, and more and more outside circumstances that are out of our control come into, we need to protect ourselves. So now some people look to guns as a method of solidifying their their false or real sense of security. Sure. Other people look to communities, other people look to church, other people looked all over the place. But it's not surprising that these statistics go in the direction they do. Um, but my, my point of it is, is I don't feel about my neighbors in my neighborhood. I don't know what's going on inside their houses, the ones I don't know. Not at all. I don't know whether they have a freaking bazooka in there or a BB gun or nothing. Or an F-15. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> an F-15. They're more I'll likely know that. to have that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, if you told them you were, you were writing a book on guns, they might, they might, in other words, the judgment that they were worried about was gone. But the question is, is how invite. does, if I knew, if I, if I saw all those houses and said, that one has three guns, that one has zero, that one has 15, that one has a, a cannon. It, it, from my point of view, does, I, I forget my point of view for a second. How does it change your thinking about the people around you? Because what my whole point is the perspective of one side versus another. Yeah. I'll tell you that some fascinating data I ran into, and it's published in the book, is if 
if you own a gun, you would, this is in general, because I know a lot of gun owners who say, nah, no way, I wouldn't do this. But in general, most gun owners feel safer in neighborhoods who allow guns, who have guns. Anderson, Nevada. And so they want more guns around them. And the more guns you own, the more likely you want guns around you. You feel safe with more guns. Non-gun owners, oh, it's just the opposite. I mean, complete opposite. They they do not want, they don't feel safe with guns in the house. They don't feel safe with guns in the neighborhood yeah. at all. But the, the so, extending question, though, Mark, is is what do they feel safe with? Yeah, because you, you did mention. Safe, which, which group? The, the non-gun owners. Because you did they mention in your book. with no guns. Yeah. Yeah, well, but. Okay. Could I yes. could I touch on this because he he did mention this. You you said that that particular group guns are not conceived as a mean of means of empowerment, rather they're seen as destabilizing. Is what we're talking about. So I guess to your point, that is a viable question. If you you live in a world where no guns, it's implausible, at least from my perspective, to assume that there would be no guns. I mean, someone's going to get a gun if it's illegal. If all of them are banned, it's not like that just removes the danger of someone having a firearm. Well, so the, the, the counter to that is there's less likelihood, right? If you pull all a, the guns out of a non-criminal having a firearm. Well, criminals I still have a rougher up. time getting them too. Mm. Supposedly. Mm. Of course, they don't have trouble don't getting so. anything else in this country. That yeah, they want, I don't think so. I think it'd be easier. Well, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm playing devil's advocate. Well, well the reason but I'm I, just saying, if all guns disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, I would be going, okay, great. Then we could have this discussion about knives. Well, I guess right. that, yeah, it's, and that's my, that's my point is, is, is it's, it's just such an interesting observation just from my perspective. Cause I mean, the reason I, I, we, you know, my wife and I, the reason we chose to become owners is, is because of that particular facet of risk, right? So uh, during the 2020 rioting and stuff like that, there was some stuff going down in our neighborhoods and we're like, we probably should get something, you know, just in case we'll never likely use it unless we go and train with it. But other than that, I mean, I have no intent to use it in my home. That's a bad thing if I use it in my home. That's like a DEFCON 5. Like, that's not the one we want to be at. We don't want to be anywhere near that particular scenario. With that being said, it just seems implausible logically for me to, for people to wish away those things and think that's a possibility. You get what I'm saying? Is well, it's wishing away reality. Guns have yeah. been around since what? Yeah, but they say 246 13, years 70. in America. 246 well, in America, but the years first guns were Chinese. Like yeah, but, but wolf and bull, which implies animals of predatory nature. Uh, no, no, bulls are. That, that, he's an omnivore. You should have heard that bull wolf. sound. At least for wolf. <laughs> that bull sound was like a wounded animal. <laughs> well, everybody would agree with your your particular discussion. They're they're gonna say the the last thing they want is a gun to protect them. In fact, they see guns as highly risky and unprotected, no matter who owns it. And so they might say, yeah, the less guns, the better. Well, they not might. They do, they do say, say not only less guns, the better, um, no guns, the better. Yeah, but then... And, and, just, and then the gun rights people feel. I'm not, you know, I'm not undermining what they feel. They're saying, I feel better with yeah. the gun. I feel safer, which is what you just said. Mm -hmm. So you have two groups who are completely can't talk to each other because one wants to regulate something this one believes is sacrosanct and I need it in my house to protect my family. And the other is saying, um, if you have it in the house, it scares the hell out of me, right? So how do you get those two groups to come together? Do you, you don't have politicians who pander to yeah. them. Because when they pander to them, they only create more fear so from each other. Yeah. It's a top-down, elite-driven problem. Mm -hmm. It's not citizens' problem. It's the elite's problem. And they, they win by this. They win by creating this tension because 
they can win an election they, this they, way. They yeah. create this tension in in all kinds of identity politics matters, except this issues. one. Well, this is why I've they, they use it as a, like I was saying earlier. They use it as a political football, mm-hmm. but they don't identify it as a primary disparity in how they get into and get thrown out of office. Well, That's I, I don't why know I've, if they can. I'm so though. surprised that this hasn't been something that people have no, grabbed. No, onto. they do identify. I, I would say just make this distinction. They identify it as a primary issue. Yeah, but they don't. The larger discussion about guns stays as an issue, not as a um, identity. Because well, it's dehumanizing. Yeah. See the difference? So an identity uh, that you, you're you a gun owner now. Yeah. That implies several identity. Well, it also uh, humanizes cues. guns. It does. No, no, I'm saying it's an identity like a white male's an identity. Yeah. Uh, 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 but doesn't it make a female doesn't identity? Make it a better it's identity? all sorts of these th- different things that are possible, right? Well, I guess they don't want to recognize they being people who discuss politics generally. Mm-hmm. They don't say gun owners. Yeah, they say the NRA. Well, that's why they, I, they say something more narrow. It's like saying this. It's like saying NAACP versus African Americans. Yeah. Right? How do we discuss politics? We talk about blacks or African-Americans. When we talk about mass politics, we talk about whites, males, et cetera. We don't talk about gun owners. We talk about the NRA. Yeah. That's a huge difference because it's not recognizing people who are gun owners and have them that have verifiable, consistent, predictable patterns of behavior over time. And they're a huge benefit to one party, not the other. But and we what, ignore I, it. My question is still the same. Why is that? Well, I, so you're, you're identifying Well, I think I know, body. though. You're, well, but well, hold on. Like, you're identifying a body. You're identifying the NRA as this target, right? Yeah. I, presumably because you don't want to target individuals. You don't want to demean individuals, the individual gun owner, because they might be. There's a lot of independents that are. Matter of fact, more independents than than. I think. I think you put your finger on it. But, but they don't do that with any NRA, other identity. Not the gun owners. Well, the reason, but, but the reason they don't do it with any other identity because it's it's advantageous to a lot of groups, specifically in power right now, to dehumanize one specific group. If I say, for example, that you know you the bull, you know you you own so and so, and you have this thing, but you are you are gun 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 owner. To Mark's point, it's much more humanizing from a political perspective and an arguments perspective when you recognize that facet. If they're specifically talking about the NRA, all you're doing is you're creating a spooky monster in a closet you can't see. No one knows what the NRA is. They, they talk about the National Rifle Association. Okay, what does that mean to you? What Honestly, what imagery-wise, if I said to somebody who doesn't own a gun, what's going to pop into your head? I don't know. I mean, I like it, when it, for me, I'm not even a member, and I'm like, uh, NRA is a group of people who support gun rights, and I guess they have a lot of money. I mean, that's, that's not threatening, at least if you... Don't phrase it in a threatening way. It's always a big bad guy in the the the, the darkness when it comes to the mainstream media. I understand what you're saying there. I do, but my whole point is right now, every other identity and identity politics is looking at the freaking color of your skin, or the how many years of school you went to, or not, or you know all these other things. So they're they're focused right. They're pointing a, a finger directly at. Whoever that identity is, except this one. The reason they're not doing this one is because if they actually give it credence to a logical point, then people actually say, huh, well, guns aren't really that big of a problem. Maybe I could get a gun. And well, to Mark's point, and to Mark's point if, if you get a gun or have multiple guns, you're more likely to vote for a particular group. I, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't think we're maybe giving I'm, too much credit to maybe. some of these people. I don't uh, think they... 
anyway. Here's a here's a point maybe uh, related that the purchases during 2020 reflected uh, a real search change in terms of what our stereotype of a gun owner is. Yeah. Now it's female. Now it's urban, and it's also um, uh, race is involved, and so. What could happen over time, and it's to a certain extent it's happening, is that the Democrats are going to have to embrace this sooner or later because a significant group within their coalition is buying guns, and guns are becoming more prevalent, not less, mm -hmm. within the Democratic coalition. Now, it doesn't mean because you buy a gun, you be, you convert to Republican. No. Nonsense. That, that's, all, that, that's a ridiculous, ridiculous aspect. But what happens, and you might, if you're a fairly new gun owner, it's just like buying a car. Yeah. You know, you, you start to see that car around on the street. Oh, there's another car like that. And you have identification with that. Or you get mailers, you get communications, you, you're, you're interested in your gun for other reasons than shooting. Let's it's kind of nice. Or, or you, you, know, you meet other people. And over time, generally speaking, that creates its own communication system that tends to reinforce a particular partisan view. Yeah. It's generally, generally, uh, not always, but generally not Democrat. I think what you create, though, is you create the same thing using your car analogy is a great one because what you create is a bifurcation uh, of type so now you've got those gun owners that are oh they're old school they're those those ones that are ready to you know enter the capital and the wrong date of the year and you, there's there's there's, there's going to have that group then you're going to have us responsible gun owners that are yeah. only buying the prius of the guns <laughs> right. no you have that, yeah, that but sure. that's what's going to it's going to increase even more. No, I've, I've presented this book to several people, and, it, and one was a class in, um, that I teach regularly. It's um, military officers. And and <laughs> the last, they're most gun control people you ever see. They all, all of them own guns. But they, the last thing they want is crazy normal, they're not no, crazy average folks who aren't trained with guns with them. Mm. And so they're imposing their particular training, their advanced training, they're assuming nobody else could handle it as well. That's the and same that's very thing that happens. That's what you're saying, the stratification within in a system like that, in a gun owner. But that just means, that just shows you how diverse gun owners would be. Yeah. Right? For example, I, I had published something in the newspaper and somebody wrote in a newspaper. It was similar to this book and it basically said gun owners tend to vote Republican. Now that's a tendency. That doesn't mean every gun owner does. Mm -hmm. And I got... You know, completely overwhelmed by mailers who were Democrat gun owners saying they'd never vote Republican, mm. right? And so I recognize there's a huge diversity within gun ownership. When when 40 percent of the population, or at least depending on the survey, at least a third owns a gun, sure there's going to be vast diversity. It's millions and millions of people, right? That's the point. We don't understand this. Yeah. Nobody exa examines it. Nobody talks about the diversity within gun ownership because they don't talk about gun ownership to begin with, right? And so you wouldn't even know uh, about these things. Well, I feel I feel like if and as to your point, you know, if if the Democrat Party does move to a softer take or an acceptance on gun ownership, I do feel like it'll potentially 
eliminate the somewhat advantageous aspect of like tribalistic and polarizing arguments and natures that result in like a litany of non sequitur anti-gun arguments or a false dilemma dichotomy arguments uh, or appeal to emotions. And a lot, I think a lot of that power, as I was saying a little bit ago, really ties into why they don't recognize it in the first place. You can't really make an appeal to emotion argument if the person that you're appealing to understands that the other side of the coin is also just like them. Right. I mean, because 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 if you sit down with somebody and it's, well, I don't I don't vote Republican because I don't believe in, you know, the, the, the mass murder of children. <laughs> How is that even correlated? But it is that argument is very common. And so I guess from my perspective, my observational point is I do think that to your point, they will have to make that adjustment. But I don't think it's going to go good for them. Because even though they'll make the, the Prius differentiation of, oh, well, this guy's got a Ruger as opposed to a Glock or an AR-15, which is a spooky, spooky rifle that looks militarized but only shoots one bullet. I mean, it's, 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 it's one bullet per, per, you know, per shot. It's not, a, it's not a fully automatic weapon. Um, these whole arguments that perpetuate this almost, I don't want to be mean, but it's, it's not informed position on these type of things. But isn't that, isn't that the same argument you can make for a lot of things. Oh, of course, this, of course. There's, there's, there's a large gap yeah. between informed and non-informed. Mm -hmm. And in today's society, with, with all the forms of communication we have, all the different, it, I mean, I would say, and I don't know if this is true, but one of the top ways most people get their news is from a headline on a social media app. Yeah, It's one of the very top ways these days. Mm -hmm. You can't dive into anything and have a good understanding of it unless you do more than that. And I'm not suggesting that everybody's got to do more than that to take a position. You can take a position any way you want, but just understand that there's always going to be a, a general populace that is not fully informed on a particular subject. If politicians know that. Ac academics know it. The military thing you talked about it mm -hmm. knows it. And, but therein lies the stratification that I worry about the most because there's always, you said Biden and Harris own a gun. They own guns. They probably think that a certain socioeconomic group probably should never own a gun. Of course they do. Well, that's just elitism. That's all that is. I mean, name it whatever you want, but that's what it comes down to. And that, that's the same in a lot of these different subjects that we talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I kind of I kind of relate this this discussion generally gun rights, gun control, similar to the the war on drugs. I find it very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, you could take marijuana for example. I mean, there was a huge point in time where people were very taboo against marijuana. Like, we can't have that legalized. You know, even though, you know, the NIH has ample data to suggest that heavy marijuana use can lead to abuse of alcoholism and further <laughs> drug involvement. Strangely enough, uh, over time that changed because people had more exposure to it. They had more understanding of it. I think the same is in relation to guns. I mean, I don't know if we mentioned the numbers. I do have some statistics, uh, but it's really in depth. I'll just generalize. 2020, there was about 45,000 deaths from guns, right? So gun, uh, you know, violence when it comes to accidents, all that jazz, suicides, about 45,000 deaths. Um, and within that same year, there was double deaths when it comes to drugs. No, just fentanyl. Just fentanyl. Judgment. So, so when, it, so when it comes to, you know, this whole understanding, I do find it to be a little strange that, and I think my position on uh, them demonizing gun owners in the NRA just generally kind of holds true here because there was a time where people demonized drug usage and marijuana, the gateway drug. I mean, I remember dare when I was a kid, I don't remember what it stands for. I mean, drugs are really 
exceptional. Exceptional. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, expressive. But but I think that that same thing holds true for gun owners. If they ever open the door to maybe understanding your neighbor who owns one or two guns, then their whole catalyst argument of well, if we have more guns and there's going to be more violence and you are at risk is going to go out the window. Um, but that's just. Guns aren't going anywhere. Mm -mm. That's the whole thing. That if if they're not going into, uh, anywhere, and I think we can all agree upon that, then you have to say, what's the next step? Mm -hmm. We can't continue this this polarization because it's not going to work as a society, as po politics. So if you start with the premise they're not going anywhere, they're they're going to be regulated, but not to the extent that gun control people want the extreme gun control people. So you know you got to take that next step and you have to have politicians take this step because it's politicians that divided us to begin with. Mm. And so you're looking for a candidate that's more centralized on this issue and, and can, can get people um, on board. It's, it's just being reasonable. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's impossible. Does reasonable get anybody elected anymore? Um, I kind of, I, I don't know. I, it depends. I mean, well, I guess if you well, say you're strength. reasonable, here, if you say you're reasonable, that got our last president elected. Yeah, but right? it, he was supposed to be reasonable. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I'm just he's the honest. most he reasonable. Was, he's the most reasonable. Most uh, reasonable. Like Uncle Joe. Reason Zable. That's what he said. Sat in the basement. If you think and about waited. what Democrats did, they, the they were smart as hell doing that. Well, they were practical because he's the most moderate candidate that stood on that stage. So there is. He's a gun owner too. Mm -hmm. Now he's his rhetoric is appeasing. The strong gun control. Well, and he wouldn't want know which side of the gun is the barrel or the handle, right? So, I mean, it's, it's also that, too. <laughs> I hope you're wrong about that. But um, what I'm saying, there's, there's room for it. He comes from the kind of Clintonian wing. That's They were always kind of moderate. Mm. Uh, Clinton got more done today. with the other side than, I, I don't know of any president in the last... Yeah. years, I mean, probably. There's space but, there, and there'll mm -hmm. be changes that might widen that space and take us back to where well, we were talking about before, and guns disappears as an issue. Yeah. But um, it'll be a while. Well, I think I think what'll be interesting, and, and this, obviously I think this is going to be indicative of the next major uh, election, um, I, I do think it's going to be interesting, uh, to your point, whether you know moderate wins. Because I think when it comes to the mainstream media and organizations that perpetuate this hysteria, hyperbolic type of position on things, they're not trusted by a lot of people these days. And I don't think that's going to go up at all. And that's the main focal point that people had prior to 2020 of determining who they were going to vote for. You know, but when you, when you don't trust the communication coming your way, what's your fallback position? You go straight to the source. Well, okay. That's you and me, right? That's, that goes I think to it's a the, lot more people the ones that are trying to be informed. That is not, I'm, I get, I'm not being critical of anybody, but that's not, think about the the forms that come to you in the mail before a general or a primary election, and it has all the different props and this and that. And I mean, you have to you have to read every one of them like twelve times to determine if yes or no means what you think yes or no is supposed to mean. Yeah. So you know what ends up happening? People fall back into the position of their category, and their category is determined by four or five things that we call identities. Right. And, that, and that's why I think this is such an important piece that is oftentimes missed, because if you if you know, if, if you can't understand or believe the Republican fully or the Democrat fully. 
and you're a Republican, you're going to vote Republican. Yeah. And if you're Democrat, you're going to vote Democrat. So all the focus has to be right in the middle. And it, you know, where those people, do they like the person's rhetoric on one side versus another? Is there, is there one or two elements that is more important to them than, than somebody else? That's what it goes to every time, as far as I can see. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that's, that's valid. I just, I would like to think, and maybe this is just me being just naive old wolfy, naive old wolfy. I would like to think that people have gotten so uh, apathetic towards the nonsense that they're just going to disregard it going forward and say, okay, well, I'm just going to read what the candidate says. I'm going to see what he says verbatim. And if that makes sense to me, that's how I'm going to vote. Maybe, maybe not. Or they're going to say, why should I vote for anybody? Yeah, but we thought that would happen last last time and it didn't. Yeah, but if you get enough emotional uh, rhetoric ginned up in the, in the, the populace that hate one person enough or love person one enough or want to be on the right side of history versus the wrong side of history, you can... Yeah, but but I think that that also goes back to what we've discussed before about the referendum on Trump as opposed to the referendum on Hillary and vice versa and all that jazz. This last election was a referendum on Trump. It wasn't... In 2016. So it was a referendum point, um, was on a re- Hillary. It was a referendum... Bottom line, it was... so. Which of these two people I don't like do I want to vote? Yeah, but but my, I guess my, my point being is I think the referendum might broaden. It'll stop being one individual and start being the, the, the whole catalog. And my whole point is if that's the case, which I hope it is, because that means that we'll go back to grassroots politics. That means we'll go back to people learning about what's in their local community, reading about their local politicians, which trickle upwards, in my opinion. If that's the case then people will start going to the source. They'll stop paying attention to these hyperbolic statements of, oh, well, you know, Bill Masterson uh, decides to support gun rights, so he believes in the total destruction of the children demographic. I mean, it's a, we'll go away from that. And I think that we are. Reason I say that is because it seems evident in the lack of trust in areas where you get that information. Your point makes sense in the sense that if everyone just becomes a turtle. If that's a turtle, if we all become turtles and we're all screwed anyway, it doesn't matter. But if the inverse happens or the alternative happens in the fact that we all come out of our shell as turtles and start walking around as upright humans and fully complete the evolutionary cycle of turtle <laughs> turtle to human uh hybrids improving you know, everyone's a lizard watched way too many uh, mutant ninja turtles as a kid yeah dude, that's, that's what you did that's, that was my bible as leonardo a child. or whatever yeah, the hell yeah. jesus did. leonardo and <laughs> but my whole point being is if that's the case then i think things will get a little bit more moderate i think you're wrong well, that's great. <laughs> I, do, that's, I, I hope and, I, I and, hope I'm not. And I'm I'm sorry, but the the fallback position, I think, is general apathy. And, and, and well, it, w- I've got a okay. quote here from his well, book that we should talk am, about. I, well, we can we can do that. But I'm just saying that, that what what decides the most thing the thing that makes people decide what to do or not to do is what's most important to themselves. Self preservation. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. So the first thing they worry about is their own sphere. Mm-hmm. And when things are uncertain, as Mark was saying earlier, you have to get, you have to circle the wagons. You have to be in Henderson, Nevada, surrounded by a whole lot of other guns, or downtown New York, New York, surrounded by no other guns. Well, you, those are the two positions. Yeah, but you also and, in those two positions, one you vote for the sure, party line. Sure, but also, and that's not you're not wrong. I think that that's correct. With that being said, though, I would say that the people that are moving away from voting party line. Because I think there will be a lot of them. Because why would you vote party line if you're frustrated with the party that you're voting for? It's not like the Democrats have anybody in in the the wings. They got Gavin Newsom. Dude, I've I've voted in a lot of elections. There's never been one that I've been happy with. 
Okay, but that's a, that's a subjective. I, I'm not saying you should be happy. I'm it's saying I'm reality. Sa- I, oh, oh, whoa, we're all in the bull's world right now, and I, I'm just it's a, my world. I'm just a, I'm the wolf in the bull's world. Uh, but I get my my point being is I I would like to think I would like to think that party line you know bipartisanship that type of stuff actually comes back as opposed to people being able to recognize that candidates are not in and of themselves good and or bad they're just all bad well and to mark <laughs> to mark's point earlier none of it really changes significantly there's there's no. an yeah, underlying check and balance oftentimes unbalanced but there's an underlying check and balance that it always is there yeah to to correct and hopefully override you know, well, what's... well, to wrap to wrap up, I would like to talk about two things. Um, first off, I, I thought the within your book there was an incredible, uh, in my opinion, an incredible story about one of your students. I'm, we don't have to utilize the name if that's not the name, but my point being is, I think it would be great to discuss his story and the analogy that he gave in relation to his in laws um, and how they came to accept at that point, his conceal and carry license and his gun ownership. I think that that's a fascinating story to paint for our listeners. So if people are on the edge or fence of whether they should support or be open-minded to it, I think that gives a really good you know, place to start. The, the, the story about Jim, the student, uh, illustrates the point that the underlying uh, factor that drives people's attitudes by toward guns are really their attitudes toward gun owners. And if you have favorable feelings toward gun owners, uh, uh, concealed carry is fine with you. Mm. Independent of whether you're a Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. That effect orientation, that how you feel towards someone drives your attitudes about all sorts of gun gun relationships. And it's the strongest predictor by far. So I I just uh, illustrated that point with Jim, a student of mine, he was a military guy, and he's, he's every day you could tell he's a military guy. He was a clean cut shirt, uh, pants ironed, you know, in a sea of undergraduates who don't do either, you know? <laughs> uh, and so he, and he, you know, sat up straight and he was uh, and wide awake, again, unusual. <laughs> uh, and so he was a great guy in class, and uh, he, I had mentioned um, some things about guns and gun control, and most undergraduates are for gun control, and he was not. And he related a story um, that I thought was pertinent to what we were talking about is that when he uh, married his his wife, his in-laws told him they knew he carried a gun, and they said, we don't want you to bring the gun over to the house. And he, out of respect, he, he didn't do it. However, over time, they got to know Jim pretty well. And knowing Jim is liking Jim. He's just a likable guy. And um, over time, uh, they, particularly when they went out and about around town, they invited Jim. And, and over time, they invited Jim to bring his gun when they felt unsafe. Mm. And the point is, is they didn't change their attitude at all toward a gun. They were still gun control advocates. They were still a little bit worried, da-da-da-da-da. But they trusted Jim, right? And so the point is, is how they felt toward Jim is what drove their attitudes toward the gun that Jim possessed. And that's true across the board. We do this with police officers. We allow them to carry guns. Um, 
most people have a, a fairly positive attitude toward in isolation toward uh, police officers. Uh, but they have a very poor attitude toward gun owners, mm. which is interesting. That it? seems contradictory. It's the same thing, yeah. right? It's rationally the same thing. I had surveys out in the field, and I'd ask people from, on a scale from zero to 100, zero meaning you really dislike the person, 50 or neutral, 100, you really like the person. How do you feel toward um, police officers? Uh, and it was around 65 was the average. How do you feel toward um, gun owners? Eh, around 35. Hmm. And NRA members, lower. Well, I know atheists did really well right? in that measure. Atheists, yeah. They're yeah. down there with atheists. <laughs> and so that's interesting, isn't it? Right? Yeah. But if they did feel favorably toward these people, uh, toward gun owners, they were more than happy to be more expressive and more um, liberal, if you will, in terms of gun control not liberal, uh, loose gun control. Yeah. So um, Jim, I liked Jim. If Jim carried a concealed gun, you probably wouldn't think twice. Now if, think about it in the opposite way, the counterfactual. Jim was stereotypically looking evil. Uh, he, he, I don't like non-owners t-shirt. <laughs> he, he threatened the professor and all the students hated him. Yeah. You don't want Jim to carry a gun. Hmm. So your attitude toward all things regulation and, and gun regulation has much more to do well, with to how your, you feel. To a point and, with and that's why what you, said, you guys said so important. The stereotypes that are out there of gun owners are huge. Yeah. There was a uh, militia kind of a uh, standoff in, in Michigan, the capital of Lansing, and they showed the media, of course, showed the worst form of it, right? The, the uh, a guy carrying a gun, he stood over a police officer and it looked, it looked like a movie. Yeah. There's thousands of other gun owners standing around that they look like me, mm -hmm. right? See what I'm saying? We're just getting tricked. Yeah. Right. There's, you, there's you, more gyms than there are the evil person. Well, and that's you're creating a caricature. Yeah. And right. you should have worn, you should have been in your class and you should have done what your, your other professor guy you knew and worn a vest. That would oh, totally. that story. Yeah. <laughs> those uh, are hard to get, by the way. Just to, like getting those vests is not easy. Velcro, they they give right. those away, by the way. Are you serious? I'm serious. Are you, uh, getting they those to, getting those vests no, they is give very them away easy if they've been damaged by bullets. No way. They can only use them once if they've been shot. Yeah. And you know what they know do that. is they give them to. Uh, I, I know one of the places in California, special needs groups got them because certain in the autism spectrum, having a weight around you a, a, is a feeling of comfort, and they would give those vests. And that's just an aside, but that's a. The Kansas State Legislature passed a law that you could carry concealed weapon um, in class. And so now my syllabus, it, it jots down the, the protocol, mm. um, how that works. And uh, some professors demonstrated against this, and one in particular, um, which he made a huge splash nationally, he walked into class with a bulletproof vest on and making the statement that he's opposed to the... Um, the, uh, the Kansas legislature's law and reasoning, and as a result, he's going to protect himself. And I always thought, well, you know, that, again, that goes to this point, at least tangentially, it, it means who do you, tr do you trust your students, right? Is there, are they all gyms or are there something out there? Mm. And I, I mean, just being someone in front of a class every day, you, you have to believe that they're all, they're all nice people. 
So yeah. um, I didn't particularly like that demonstration, but it certainly made all the papers. I mean, no, I no offense. If I was one of the students in class, but you think I'm going to take you out? I mean, obviously the whole thing well, is not to shoot the mass, bud. It's to go after the targets that aren't blocked. So now I know. <laughs> well, I'd have, I'd have, if I was a student, I probably would have, whether I agree with him or not, it would have been funny to put on a pair of headphones and then had him question why are you win the headphones to protect me against what you're going to tell me. Well, I would have just brought in one of those like little straws and like chewed on some paper and like, Oh yeah. Got him right in the side. He'd probably pulled out. The gun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I guess my, my, my point, um, what I think is interesting is, is you make a really, really good point about that because, and I talked about this with Beowulf on other episodes. We, as a society and as a culture, we derive a lot of our social quirks and viewpoints from things that just aren't real, which is really weird. Uh, I talked about in the last episode, uh, I think it was like literally last episode, episode about dating. Uh, one of the rules that people refer to when contacting people on a side note of dating is the three day rule. It's made up. It's from romantic comedies. Like wow. is there's no credence of data. There's no reason. Um, and so my whole point thinking about this on a very roundabout way of talking about this subject, um, you, you look at something like the, the, the situation that happened in Lansing and it's like, well, obviously that's the polarizing photo you want from a media conglomerate. That's right. polarizing photo you want from someone who is anti-gun. But to the point we discussed a little bit ago, if you remove that photo and you create someone like Jim, then that's no longer a threat to anybody. And well, more people are likely to get involved. This, more recently, it's the whole um, whipping the migrants. Oh, yeah, thing, yeah, right? yeah, the yeah. Horse Those guys thing. got in trouble. Those guys well, they got, got in trouble, trouble but yeah. guess what? They don't use horses anymore. Simply because that picture, which blew up all over the world, gave an image that they did not want to have. So they took away the ability to, to utilize that tool, those horses, to help stop well, that now, situation. Now they're riding bulls. No. <laughs> well, at least we're not using bulls yet. They use coyotes, though. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just it's interesting. I don't necessarily know how I feel um, or what I think about that particular uh and analogy with Jim, because I, I think it's, I think you mentioned it. Well, you might have mentioned this. Might have just been me creating in a whole cloth. Um, I, I think it's kind of disturbing, in a, in a way, because people are predicated more to make their decisions off of their observation of something, as opposed to factual data. I think that's it could be a little distur disturbing, at least well, from my perspective. Well, I mean, think about it this way: if everybody says, "Oh, they're they're dangerous," this they're dangerous that, and I I don't disagree that the things have the potential of causing a huge amount of harm. That's what they're, they're built to be used, mm -hmm. right? But I always go back to the tool thing. And, you know, Jim's in-laws, whether they agree, whether they think so or not, they believe it's a tool. And now that they knew it was in the hands of someone they believed in, now it's a safe tool. If it's in the hands of someone they don't believe in, a caricature, a stereotype, then it's, then it's the other way around. I mean, that, so in that, but in that respect, see, this is, this is a problem, but it gives you some insight to the problem, is that it's almost impossible if you think along those lines, you know, mass shootings, uh, the violence we're talking about. If those aren't about guns, what the hell are we going to do, right? If they're about guns, we can legislate that. Yeah. The, the, People in power can do something, look like they're doing something. If it's about a more complex thing, it's not just one variable, there's a whole array of things going on, then they're, they're, they're kind of moot. Oh, you they're mean it's a hard problem? 
it's, yeah, it's a I mean, problem that, worth solving. I mean, that's that's the <laughs> no, but, that's the thing but, that drives me freaking that, crazy. That there's no root analysis. We, no, we talked before we got on air. We talked about there's just some things that government government's not well positioned to handle. All things. And, and I'm sorry. Some things. One thing would be a, a complex problem that's not just you know we can just instantly throw something down and regulate it. It's but clearly that goes a back to your problem. original premise though that if if this was. I mean, this is, I know the, the word gun in that is the central focus of this because of the, the ubiquity of them and, and the danger that it implies to have them and all that. But if it was really more nuanced than that, then study the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. That's what needs to be said, not just for the political exactly. situation, right. but this, this should have as much literature in academia as it, it, a space. And it should be a psycho, psychology. Yeah. course specifically aimed at the usage of weapons i don't know if there even is such a thing there's, there's all kinds of stuff out there well the, the 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 most in terms of these issues sociology leads the way in terms of un, trying to understand gun culture second would be um public health people are into this and of course they're in particular into this because they see guns as a public health issue well, sure. And so danger, violence again is the thing. So we be, and then third is probably psychology, dispositions, and risk. But public but, health is but, always an all-or-nothing situation. Yeah. But the, the bigger point is is that it is a complex problem. Mm-hmm. In every part of a university, in terms of different disciplines, should look at this, but they don't because the, both the funding and both the disposition about the connection to violence is always there. It's a much more, we just identified, it's a more, com- just regulating guns is a multi-layered problem. And it's not just for one discipline to look at. It should be a, across many of them, and it's not. And until it is, we don't get to that point of agreement. It's got to be agreement amongst those who make recommendation for policy, agreement among politicians and the elites that we got to quit, you know, playing games with this issue and get serious about it. And if you do that, you come to some sort of, you know, balancing act, mm-hmm. not all or nothing. It's a balancing act. How far do we go and where do we go? We don't always compare ourselves to Europe or anything. That's just a ridiculous comparison. We have to compare, we have to think about our own position and where we need to go. And until elites come to that position, we're helpless. We're just yeah. helpless. Well, I, I'd love to end uh, with something you said at the very end of your book. Um, You stated, thoughtful people can possess modest, dispassionate attitudes about gun control. They can be tolerant of competing worldviews and advance sober practicality when it comes to public policy. The repeated vitriol directed at one side or the other ensures democratic failure. That is one lesson from the past several decades of gun politics. All things considered, sitting on the fence can be a reasonable reasonable position. Can we briefly dive into your thoughts about that particular statement in relation to you know, gun control and current polarizing uh, topics. Yeah, I, I think we just spent some time on it. I, it's it's great you picked that out. I like that quote too. Mm-hmm. That's a good quote. <laughs> um, because who whoever nowadays asks people to sit on the fence, zero. No one does it. And that's the reason I wrote it, because it's a good position to be in. What it says is, as opposed to many people who are, you were talking about making the case for highly informed, highly informed people rarely sit on the fence. They think they know the position exactly. going in. That's why I like people who set an offense that are often, they're honest with themselves. I can see this position. I can see that. I can. 
Why can't other people? Because there's a lot going on here, right? This is not a simple issue. We've talked about it just now. There's all sorts of different things going on. So let's sit on the fence for a while and listen and think about where we need to go with this as opposed to a predetermined path we're listening to somebody else who really doesn't know that much about it anyway. He's just trying to get our votes. And if we did that, if academics did that, if consultants and campaigns did that, and if elite journalists did that, we'd go much farther down a useful path. Um, and we'd have far less violence, I think, as well. But we're not. We're, we're not at all. I mean, think of the contradictions this society does. Hollywood blasts society for being violent, yet perpetuates the thing. Guns are in every movie ever made, yet, you know, they say, let's control them. So, I mean, you have to widen the lens and say, well, this is not just about more access means more violence. It's a social society problem mm. that we haven't even come close to addressing. The only way to address it is get off, sit back, and watch and see um, where we should go and what we should do and hopefully support politicians who are doing the similar thing. Mm. Sit on the fence. Recognize. I mean, think about you'll never see this, and I, I don't want to aggrandize this organization, but the NRA is a tremendous organization for special interests. But that's part of our Constitution. You have a right to band together and be represented, just as the AARP is a, a tremendous organization, just as the NAACP is. But one is tarnished mm -hmm. in society and the other is not. What would happen if Democrats actually embraced part of that organization, the part that they could deal with? It would, it would mess them up totally, right? I mean, yeah. it would create fissions and fractures. Why not, right? Sitting on the fence allows you to see things you never would see before. It allows you to get outside your dispositions and say, that might be possible, that might work. That's what this book is about. That most people that I deal with have never, ever thought about, um, in political behavior, never thought of gun owners as a group. It's startling how they, what? And then I show them this data. Wow, that's interesting. I never, really? No, it's really about partisanship, Jocelyn. It's all about partisanship. It's really, you, what you're seeing in the data is gun owners are really Republicans, and that's what's splitting them up. And then I do all the modeling, statistical analysis, and still show them, no, 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 no. It's still, see, they're not sitting on the fence. <laughs> they're unwilling to see something different. And so they're going to keep, we're going to keep running down that path. And more millions of dollars are going to, um, be underwritten for public health and for violence. And both are reasonable, but not reasonable in a larger context. We're not solving anything, right? Yeah. It's just all going the same way. So that's why at, at the end of the book, I wrote that. And one colleague, the guy who's quoted in the back of the book, he saw that correctly. And it's, it's what it is, is just a plea to say, look, give it a shot. See yeah. what happens. We should give it a shot on many other issues too. Right? I mean, there's tons of issues in which we're not even close to being um, together on. Yeah. Right? Seems like there's a divide for the sake of having a divide. I mean, that's... And you know what it is? We're, we're being divided. Mm -hmm. It's not that we're divided. We're being divided. Our choices are this far apart. If they were this far apart, we'd make the choices. Mm -hmm. You could still choose Republican or Democrat, but they're close. They used to be closer. 1968 election, not a dime's worth of difference um, between candidates. That was the lament. Humphrey or Nixon, who gives a shit? They're the same, <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? Who says that now? 
No, we're not polarized. No, yeah. Our choices are polarized. Think of the difference. We're not probably polarized on guns either. It's just that the politicians are making us choose between this and this. So don't willingly go for it. Sit on the fence and say, I don't agree with you. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm a gun rights person. I'm not saying I'm a gun control person. But I don't agree with you polarizing me because that's what's going on. They're playing with us. They're dividing the pie in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Elections are all about winning. No other thing. And if I can get you and you to disagree and that makes me win. Thanks for listening to the Wolf and Bull podcast with your host, the Wolf and Bull. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all of the latest from the Wolf and Bull, you can tune in via our weekly episodes available on nearly every major listening platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Wolf and Bull. You can follow us on YouTube at the Wolf and Bull podcast and at our website, thewolfandbull.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.